So you could probably guess what I'm going to talk about tonight. <laughs> Land as teacher. I seem to keep on coming back to that. So I, I know it's not kind of, you could say, outside the box of this particular retreat. In some ways you could say it's right in the middle of the box. But it really is such a wondrous box, don't you think? There's birds in that box. There's a beautiful river. There's trees and grasses and all kinds of bugs. And the little spider that just was on me. And the super cute ground squirrels that are not afraid of us. <laughs> it's, uh, it really is so vast, immensely vast, and it, it touches my heart. I think that's why I want to keep on coming back to it. And I'd like to begin with a poem by Jane Hirschfield called Tree. It is foolish to let a young redwood grow next to a tree, next to a house. Even in this one lifetime, you will have to choose that great calm being or this clutter of soup pots and books. Already the first branch tips brush at the window, softly, calmly, immensity taps at your life. This is often how it feels when I am engaged in retreat on such forested land. It feels like immensity tapping at my life. And it, it beckons a kind of choice there that I so love how she articulates. I, I do have to ask myself, do I want to live from a heart that's cluttered with soup pots and books? Or do I want to live from a heart that's been deeply touched by that great, calm being. What's it going to be? Another way of putting this is when I practice on forested land, it, it brings me into contact with what's important to me in this brief life of mine. And I appreciate the tapping, the immensity tapping at my life out there. Because it, it, it disrupts my life in a good way. Really by reminding me what's important. This to me is the power of land as teacher. And what I want to do tonight is I want to unpack a bit the, the forming and construction of this framework, Land as Teacher, because it's so intertwined with the foundation, foundational teachings of Theravada Buddhism, just the, the, the framework itself, the, the framing of it, you could say. And in particular, it's situated upon how the Buddha understood the world, 
the world that we inhabit. And the, the Pali word is loka. It's often translated as world. For example, he's speaking to this uh, deva Rohitasa, and he, he situates it in a very interesting way. He's clear. He says, for it is in this fathom-long body, this body here, with its perception in mind, that I describe the world. So what is he pointing to? Oh, the, the world that I inhabit is in part, it's in part created by this mind, by how it perceives, by how it cognizes and understands. This is his understanding that the world is co-created by external stimuli, at least in early Buddhism, that's there, and this mind and how it perceives. So when I, when I look over there and I see this beautiful pine tree, this beautiful mountain with, with pine trees on it, and the aspens intertwined, that's what I perceive. But the spider that was just on the floor here they perceive it really differently. And the mosquito, incredibly differently, probably from me and the spider. And I want to point out that my perception of that is not necessarily truer, truer than the ant's perception or the spider's perception or the mosquito's perception. They're just different. They're different ways of perceiving And even within my own experience, this is happening all the time. Bell. Here's a bell. But I could also perceive this as some ornate bowl that could be used to serve soup from. That also is a valid perception. It could be perceived in that way if it was in a particular context and if my mind was perceiving it in a particular way because of that context. And one is not necessarily truer than the other. They're just different perceptions. And as Dharma practitioners, the Buddha is inviting us to learn the skill of perceiving experience really in various ways with a, a very clear intention to perceive in ways that free this heart and mind, to perceive in ways that is onward leading for me on this path and in this practice. And there's three classical ways of of perceiving that the Buddha taught, and Aaron and I have already covered uh, two of them. For example, this afternoon, Aaron spoke about perceiving, opening to impermanence. Or this morning, I was sharing with you to open, to receive, to perceive the selfless nature of experience. I talked about these flavors of intimacy that can come, or peace. And within that was this way of perceiving that both Aaron and I referred to from the Bahia Sutta, this conversation that the Buddha had with Bahia. And the seeing is just a scene, and the hearing is just the heard and how powerful that perception can be for freeing the heart. And then the the third one is uh, dukkha, the sense of unreliability perceiving in this way. 
and other ways of perceiving. This afternoon, again, Aaron shared, what would it be like to perceive meditating like the earth, or the water, or wind, or like fire, or like space? Getting a, a feeling sense how these elements aren't in contention with the way things are. The, they don't have this mental reactivity. It's a way of perceiving. It's a way of coming into meditation to get a different feeling and hopefully discovering a different way of being in this world. And again, I want to repeat, these ways of perceiving are not necessarily more true than other ways of perceiving. It's just that they have the potential of being onward leading. They have this potential, this potency of freeing my heart. So part of Dharma practice is having a flexibility of perception, being able to perceive in a whole host of different ways, even just one thing, and to fully perceive it. When I say that, it's just not this mental thing, but the full felt sense of an experience from a different perspective. And there's this one short sutta where the Buddha is praising practitioners who have this ability to, the example is just a block of wood, and practitioners that can perceive this block of wood from all these different angles. And he calls it like this, this, this potency, this psychic potency that's so important for freeing the heart and mind. And this is what we've been inviting you, is to take up this way of perceiving this land as, at Vaisitos as teacher, as Dharma teacher. It's a different way of perceiving. And I think I can speak for both Aaron and I. We're moved by this, I know I am, because it feels onward leading. That's why we always come back to this. It feels like it's, it's, it helps, at least this is what I've noticed, to free my heart. When I behold this land in, in this way, it carries my heart toward freedom. In particular, it helps free me from these habitual ways of perceiving the world so that so I can free me from these habitual ways of thus being in the world and discovering a different way of being in the world. So I want to uh, kind of unpack just a couple of different perceptions that are within this sense of land as Dharma teacher. And I want to say there's many. I just picked about two to take some time with around here that I, I have found important. One is, is that this land here is filled with deep, deep meaning. It's meaningful. So it's deeply meaningful for me. It holds in, and contains meaning out there. And what's part of the meaning that we're, we're offering, and hopefully you know you make it your own in some way, but some of the meaning is that this land, whether it be the rocks, the dirt, the trees, the bugs, the grasses, they're animate, they're fully animate, fully sensuate, as, as sentient. And that they are imbued with wisdom, with Dharma wisdom. And not only that, they want to share that with the wisdom with me. 
This is the meaningfulness, this malleability that we're inviting around perception. And then also what comes with this is that I can have a deeply personal relationship with this land as teacher. So not something cookie cutter style, but it's somehow uh, involved with my life personally. It's speaking to me personally. So the first perception, meaningfulness in the land. So, so there's two ways we could say, just to explain this, there's two ways of perceiving the land out there. I can perceive it as inherently meaningful, or I can perceive it as inherently meaningless. And again, I want to point out that these two ways of perceiving, um, uh, they're not necessarily truer than the other. They're just different ways of perceiving the land out there. But what I'm curious about is what's the perception that feels onward leading that's going to free my heart, that has the potential for freeing my heart. And you might be able to relate to this. As a contemporary person, I was conditioned to think that that world around me is inherently meaningless. This is actually one of the basis that's needed for scientific inquiry, which I'll get into a little bit. And it has been so helpful for the, the, the unfolding of science in the scientific method. So one example of this. Uh, 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 Isaac Newton, he wrote, the, for sh- in short, the Principia, where he outline the the laws of motion and the laws of gravity. It's probably one of the most uh, significant and one of the most important books written in all of the the history of science. It was it was groundbreaking. It was revolutionary. And by allowing the world to be meaningless, it gave Newton this chance to have these nice clear mathematical equations that we're doing this incredible job of, of predicting, an incredible job of mathematically understanding the world of physics. And what's so fascinating about this book is he's outlining these really <laughs> complicated theorems. And then at the end, the last chapter, it was like an end note. He just sticks in the end note what was meaningful for that time. So that was talk of God and divinity, he's put it in the end note, and then you can write the Principia. It was important for him to take out meaningfulness in order to have the power of predictability that comes with mathematics. To see how bodies of mass move, for example, and how they impact each other. It's great stuff, the scientific method in science. But it's also left me with this kind of habitual tendency to perceive the world as meaningless. I come to Vallecitos, and it's so beautiful. It's so beautiful. It really is beautiful. You like the trees and the grasses? It's really beautiful. I want to point out what's inherent in that is that 
it's meaningless. Folks from other cultures would not come here and just say it's beautiful. They would immediately have this experience of the trees speaking to them and probably needing to, to, to honor that relationship in a very particular way. And they would hear the river say certain things to them and tell them to do certain things. It's not just beautiful. It's imbued with deep meaning and meaningfulness. And it's just the way that many cultures perceive. But that has been taken away from me. And then when I come here and I practice here and and some teacher says to me, the land is the teacher. What can happen is I start to perceive it, but then I come back and I'm like, I'm just imagining that. That's just my perception. And in some ways that's true, but what's underneath that kind of self-talk is really, it's meaningless. It's really meaningless. And then I kind of paste on all this meaningfulness to it to make it meaningful for me. But really, I mean, come on, seriously. It's just a bunch of trees and grass and there's some bugs and things like that. Can you relate to this? This is what I notice in discourse with other people in this dominant culture. This is how we talk about this place. And so it's been very important for me to notice that the perception that that's meaningless is just another fabricated perception. I'm not saying one is better than the other, but I want to be aware of how my mind habitually perceives and either consciously choose that or to see if I can start to train the heart and mind in a different way of perceiving. That this land is inherently meaningful, that touches my heart. That has just as much validity as that that land is meaningless. There hasn't been a scientific study done to notice where meaningfulness really is. But I've been told something that I can believe, that it's only in here. Is making sense? It's really important just to reveal my own cultural conditioning. That's part of what we're doing here, is what's my cultural conditioning that I get from contemporary dominant culture? And again, like, I'm down for science. (laughs) This is not like an (laughs) anti-science talk. Like, I probably wouldn't be here just when I think of the medical interventions that I've needed if it wasn't for science. But I also want to have a broader sense and an ability to be in the world that's much deeper than what I've been given from that, that actually I find to be very onward leading and freeing. And this has been important for me around really landing and fully inhabiting this perception of this land as teacher. Because with any perception, it's a training. I need to come back to this again and again and again so my heart can start to feel this again and again. So it starts to be this well-worn groove that begins to be natural from this heart. It's not a one-time thing that I do and then it's over. At least I haven't noticed that. Right? If it was that easy, then right, we would just, we'd just take a hit of acid and it would be done. <laughs> 
let it be good. <laughs> LSD didn't work that way for me. It kind of felt like that, you know, at first it was like, wow, this is great. But this is different. This is a training of the heart that I need to come back to again and again. So this is one invitation just to play with the perception that this is deeply meaningful. It's inherently meaningful. In this particular way, it's fully animate. And and there's wisdom out there that can really transform your life. And then what comes with that, or at least what has come with that for me, is having a deeply personal relationship with this land as teacher. And this is something that you find, especially in traditional Buddhism, much stronger than often some forms of uh, contemporary uh, Buddhism, like insight meditation. And to frame this, I want to share with you something about the founder of uh, what's called Shin Buddhism, which which is a, a, a school of Buddhism that emerged in Japan in the 13th century. And Uh, the founder of Shin Buddhism was uh, Shinran. And he once said, you know, this is kind of part of his discovery. I'm paraphrasing here a bit just to have it uh, give meaning to what I'm uh, sharing here. He says, when I carefully consider the teaching the Buddha brought forth, I find it was personally for me, Shinran, And how grateful I am to this teaching of the Buddha that it was created specifically for me, specifically to free me and to save me. I find this a striking sentiment. And just to juxtapose it to a different way of perceiving. This is different from, you know, I came across some Buddhist teachings, you know, I've got into meditation and I've read some books and it's, it's pretty cool. I've gotten a lot out of them. And again, I know this is a lot. <laughs> again, it's a valid perception. But it's different than the feeling, the felt sense that the, the Buddha is actually speaking to me. He's speaking to my specific challenges, my predicaments, my particular suffering. Or maybe it's Quan Yin. She's speaking to me. She's singing to me, as, as Aaron used, used that sense. Like I can feel her felt sense, and it's about me and my specific situation. And it allows me, uh, when I start to get a sense of this, of being emotionally touched in a very personal way, by a spiritual practice, by a spiritual path. And what can come with this is, at least for me, this deep felt sense of being connected with this path and and how it feels like it's deeply resonating in my bones. It's for me. The, the Buddha taught this just for me. Kuan Yin revealed this just for me. So having that deeply personal connection that in the end goes beyond the personal but needs to be rooted in the personal and sometimes for some practitioners this starts to arise when there's a kind of a taste of a palpable transformation that comes from the dharma it's like oh yeah this is for me it's 
it's addressing my difficulty. And even though I was a little bit dismissive, I want to acknowledge that of one of those perceptions, I want to say just with those two perceptions, really, one is not truer than the other. It's getting a feeling sense of what's onward leading for you, what's freeing the heart. And being willing to have a malleability of perception. So so I'm not just following the habitual ways of perceiving that dominant society has given me. So yeah, the teachings have felt personal for me, and it's also deepened the sense of reverence and devotion that Aaron spoke about as well. And then this connection, connection. just as it feels like the Buddha deeply understood my predicament, I feel like this land here, this land here deeply understands my challenges and my predicament. It's alive, it understands that it's sensitive to me in this way. Not only do I see the flower, the flower sees me. The flower sees me in all my particularities. That's why we started there with that hello. I'm saying a hello to the particular tree and the particular grass and the particular wind. And it's seeing me. It's beholding me in my particularities. So I want to give uh, an example of this that brings some of these together. (coughs) This feeling of land understanding my particular predicament. (coughs) The sense that this land is deeply meaningful in a particular way. It's deeply (coughs) meaningful in the sense that it's fully animate. It contains wisdom that can speak particularly to me. So the example I'd like to give is an example of uh, this other piece of land that I feel like has really held this for me. It's held me, it's held this deep meaningfulness. It's held this sense of, oh, this land is my teacher. And it also is land that that has this, this sense that it deeply understands my predicament. So this land that I'm talking about is it's this uh, land that actually Robin and I have done these self-retreats on. Uh, it's a specific piece of land close to Flagstaff. And we've been doing retreats there for the last few years, usually kind of two weeks at a time. And I remember one time I went out there, I spent a lot of time exploring just this perception of land as teacher. I mean, sometimes it could be tree as Dharma teacher or rock as Dharma teacher. And the way it was set up, and I shared this a little bit, is is a chunk of uh, each day was devoted to samadhi practice. It was just it was such a great place of doing deep samadhi practice. And then that was intertwined with kind of the basic mindfulness, mindfulness practice that all of us know about. And then a sense of continuity. And then I'd be opening up, I'd be receiving, opening to this perception of land as Dharma teacher. 
And really, I want to point out, it was most of the time I was just allowing that feeling sense of that perception, just as I was talking about having the feeling sense that you get from a beautiful piece of music or a striking uh, uh, art, uh, piece of art, visual art. So, and I, would, I was just feeling that, sensing into that. And I remember uh, during this time of exploring land as Dharma teacher, there was, there was something um, like the edge for me was this, uh, the language is like finding my place. So finding my place in the sense of land. Where's my one place with land, that real connection with land? But it also embodied the sense of place being that deepest place in the Dharma, that deepest freedom. How do I contact that, that place, that one place? So there's something very personal about it for me as well. It deeply connected with my practice of the Dharma. And as I was exploring this relationship, it was this particular pinyon tree in this area. The feeling sense I got from her was this sense of, uh, it's, it's actually hard to put in words. It was um, something like, it was like she was saying, you know, uh, I, I am here, her as teacher, I'm so deeply rooted here. And it was almost this strange feeling sense of, I'm so deeply rooted here that I was here even before I grew and sprouted up into this form. That's how long I've been here. And I'll be here as part of this land even after I die. So whether that death be from drought or fire or beetle kill or loggers, I'm still here in this one place. It was such a moving thing to feel from her. And it felt like there was this invitation for me to discover such a place, such a deep place. This invitation to touch and feel that within me. And then after that, the fire came. It was a a brutal fire in Flagstaff, and it it ravaged through large swaths of the land that we've been practicing on for years now. And remember, this is a land which, I think you could speak with both of us, for both of us, in which we had these deep personal relationships. Right, having the sense, oh, here's this land that brought forth these teachings specifically for me. And how grateful I am to this land to give me teachings that lead me to freedom. And now it's burned, it's destroyed, it's ravaged. And I remember just the deep heartbreak that came when we first went out there and saw the land burnt in many places. And I remember people would say, you know, this is what's needed for forests. Forests have to 
fires have to come through to keep forests healthy in the long run, which is true. But when there's a personal relationship to it, it's heartbreaking. It'd be like somebody coming and you say, well, your partner, they need to die. Like, it's part of the process. It keeps things healthy, you know. Yet it's so much easier, right, for us to do that with forested land. It's true, but it's because there isn't so much of a personal relationship that there can sometimes be little heartbreak. And then we came back to that land to practice on that same land after the fire. And for me, coming back onto the land, it was tough. It was, uh, the, the heartbreak at times could be so powerful and poignant to really behold the loss of these particular trees that were either no longer there or completely kind of incinerated yet still standing. And sometimes that was from very old trees that were burnt. And I remember these very young trees that were destroyed who I had offered water to each day. And I I remember coming back to, in that space, land as my teacher with heartbreak. And what was so surprising for me was this uh, clear felt sense that from her perspective, she was at peace with it. She wasn't disturbed by the fire. And it felt like some kind of deep peace for her. Like what Aaron was sharing about last night. Right? That, that quote that she shared with us, there is an island which you can't go beyond. That place of no thingness, that place of non-possessiveness. The end of death and decay, and that's why it's called Nibbana. And if there are those who, in mindfulness, have realized this and are completely at peace here and now. And there she is, and then here I am. You know, I bring into these, bring to mind these perceptions like the frame of climate catastrophe and the problems with human supremacy. Two things that for me are really real and devastating. Yet she never uses such frames. I use those frames. That was important for me to feel. She doesn't even use the frameworks of birth and death. Those are for me in my life. And yes, she sees me. She sees how these frameworks are useful for me. Yet I can also, I also felt her trying to pull me into something much vaster than just those frameworks. Not to deny my perceptions, 
but an invitation into something bigger. Like she was trying to pull me into some kind of immensity. Some kind of immensity. And I want to be clear, I, 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 not that my perception will ever be the same as her perception, but it contains so much wisdom that I'm still digesting. So land, land as Dharma teacher. A different way of perceiving. It is foolish to let a young redwood grow <coughs> next to a house. Even in this one lifetime, you'll, you'll have to choose that great calm being or this clutter of soup pots and books. Already the first branch tips brush at the window, softly, calmly, immensity taps at your life. So may all of us be touched by this immensity that taps at our life out there. Thank you. Thank you for your attention. Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.